If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 19. Holy Spirit, we love you this morning, and we thank you that you would reveal Jesus to us, that you would give us greater revelation of the fullness of the cross, the finished work of what you've done, God. Lord, the songs that we sang this morning are declarations that are to stir our faith. As we look at you, as we behold you, as we worship you, that you would stir us up to really believe that it's finished and that it's done. So God, as we open your word this morning, I ask for divine revelation. I ask for your anointing. I ask, Holy Spirit, right now that you'd come upon me, that what I communicate right now would not be of my own intelligence, of my own thoughts, or of my own wisdom, because it's so frail, broken, and, and weak. But God, that you would come right now and teach us and train us. Holy Spirit, that you would speak. Lord, I ask every heart, including mine, let it be undone by the goodness of God, by the goodness of the message of the gospel. That's not just a message, but it carries the substance of the man, our resurrected King, Jesus Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, even now, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we read your word, that it washes us, cleanses us, that the blood of Jesus is ministered to our hearts. We honor you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you in this room. You're already here, but we say, God, reveal yourself to us in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you would have seen our media team. I love them to bits. They're doing so well. If you haven't seen our social media stuff, I am so proud of our, our team. They really are killing it. Um, and uh, there's some really beautiful posts. But on, I think it was on Friday, they, they put up the post that said Kala. And it's the Aramaic word that we read when it's, it is finished. And uh, it's, it's my favorite word. If I wasn't ministering to the Middle East, I'd have it tattooed all over my body. Um, but that would be really dangerous. Um, but uh, it means this. It doesn't just mean the task is complete. It doesn't just mean uh, that it's done. See, our English language is really limited, and so it does, the, the translators do their best to try and fully communicate, but it's not just it is finished. It actually means perfection. It, it, means, it doesn't just mean the task of dying on the cross uh, happened. It means that everything that, that, that he was doing in that moment spiritually, physically, to do with sin, to do with sickness, to do with the future, to do with righteousness, the whole package, the whole thing's done. And it's actually a word that the Jews used on a wedding day to describe a bride in her most beautiful and perfect state. That's what he said when he said it is finished. And so when he, when he cries out, it is finished, he's, he's basically crying out, I've just given birth to my perfect bride. Now, this is what blows my mind every time. I, will, I can preach this a thousand times a day and still be rocked every time because I'm not sure where in that equation we did anything to deserve that. There is nothing in this story where man found a, 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 their role to play, their job in this story that finally made it okay for Jesus to say that. In fact, this story is so profound and so wild that it starts off where there's a choice between Jesus, the perfect, most beautiful, innocent king, the, the most amazing man, God himself, who actually made himself like us and served man. This beautiful man, it's him or it's Barabbas, the murderer and the thief. And we chose Barabbas. And this story is profound to me because Barabbas actually means small s, son of the father. The son of God came so that the son of the father, little s, you and me, could be set free, but we didn't deserve any of it. In fact, I guarantee you when Barabbas got set free, he wasn't going like, oh, sure, this is wrong. Or he was just, thank God I'm free. I'm like, that's amazing. I deserve death. I guarantee you he wasn't, he might have looked at Jesus and gone, oh my word, that's, that's not right. But Every single one of us would have been like, thank you, they chose me. Okay, let's get out of here. Jesus wasn't looking for the right response. He did it anyway. Are you with me? Jesus wasn't looking for them to go, oh, wow, this is that moment that was prophesied. And he's like, they didn't see it at all. In fact, they were spitting on him, crying out, crucify him. The Messiah, the one that for hundreds of years, thousands of years they've been searching for, crying out for, waiting for. And then he's there and he's about to do the very thing that they were looking for. For the very prophetic word, he's now the substance of that, but they miss the whole thing and it doesn't matter to him. And, and in Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I'm going, I read this and I go, where's the joy? Because <laughs> everybody rejects him. His own disciples flee and run. Nobody stands with Jesus. There's no joy in this moment. So what joy was he talking about? There was something that Jesus saw. He understood that this was so much more than a moment. This was so much more than just that, that the crucifixion. This was about what it actually opens up for 
for the people of God. And this is, this is what stirs my heart is when he dies and he, he says it's finished. It's his last words, his last breath. And then a soldier pierces him on the right side. And blood and water come out. And John, I love John. We went to his grave um, in, in Turkey and we got rocked there. But John is standing. He's the only one who's standing at the foot of the cross. And he, he actually writes here. He's like, and he, John the eyewitness who has seen it, has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also who read this may believe. In other words, John going like, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm writing this as an eyewitness. He was stabbed in his right side and blood and water came out. Why blood and water? It's just this beautiful phenomenon. Where's the other time that you see blood and water? Birth. Jesus is making this beautiful statement. He cries out, Kalah, my beautiful, perfect bride. And blood and water come out of his side saying, you are now co-heirs, equal with me, my bride. Just like God took Eve out of Adam's side. Jesus declares, Kalah, I'm here for a bride. And it's taken out of his side. I'm rhyming now. Let's go. Um, <laughs> can't think of anything else. <laughs> when he died, yeah, it was a wild ride. It's incredible just to see this. If, if you would catch a glimpse of this and go, this is, we will spend all of eternity pondering this and going, how could this be so? We did nothing to deserve this. You know, people have this struggle because we, we think that the crucifixion and the resurrection had to do with sin. We make sin the focal point of the message of the gospel. It is not. It's an obstacle. Just, if, if we would understand that the focus, the focal point of the gospel is not dealing with your sin. The focal point of the gospel is intimacy with God. He wants a bride. He wasn't trying to prove a point that, well, these people couldn't get their act together, so let me do it for them. That's not the God we serve. He was looking for a people that He wants intimacy with. The reason why God hates sin is because of what sin does to our minds. We're the ones who allow sin to separate us. We're the ones who allow sin to speak. We're the ones who actually create consequences that He took away. See, Jesus is fiercely in pursuit of us as His people. He's wildly in love with us. When we talk about the resurrected King, I, I get really excited because I, I know that I haven't seen Him fully yet. And I, every little bit that we see, it just stirs more and more of the outrageous, scandalous good news of what He's done. It's something that if it's not offending our mind, we need to keep refreshing ourselves because it is offensive. Pharisees hated Jesus. The religious spirit hates Him because it's so good. It is so out of your control. You cannot earn it. You can't prove yourself. There's no way for you to say that I played a part in this. Your job is to receive what He's given you. See, here's the thing. People get upset when we say, well, you've been given righteousness. It's scriptural. You just go to 2 Corinthians 5. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. We are. It's not a conversation. It's not a debate. It's just a statement of truth. But people get upset because they're, how did we get that? How, it, it, it can't be that I'm, I just am the righteousness of God. Well, let me put it this way. Did Jesus have to sin to take the place of the sinner? See, Jesus, He didn't just put sin on Himself. He became the sinner. He became the murderer. He became the adulterer. He became the addict. He became the thief. He became sinners. All of us. But did He have to actually sin to do that? Or was sin imputed to Him? So if Jesus didn't have to sin to become the sinner, do you think God's looking for you to do a righteous deed before you can be righteous? No, it's a free gift, the Bible says. In the same way that He died and took sin upon Himself, that same principle is how He has now given us His righteousness as a free gift so that we can be righteous. It's good news, yeah. See, we have this fear that actually believing this is going to create just a bunch of sinful people in the church who think it's okay to sin and get away with it. It's just so, it's so messed up. It's so legalistic by nature. Just that statement is just, it's all about proving something. And Jesus is going, it was never about proving anything. His intentions in the garden were clear. He didn't create Adam and say, okay, give it your best shot and let's see if you can hang with me. He didn't say that. 
He made Adam to commune with Him. So God's intention for you is not to be sin conscious. His intention for you is not to try and figure out how to deal with your sin so that you can be close to God. It's not the message of the gospel. The question is not how do we deal with sin. The question is how do you see yourself now? Are you with me? We don't have to deal with sin. He dealt with it. The reason why we're still suck, stuck, well, we still suck and stuck. <laughs> the reason why we still suck and still, <laughs> we're still stuck in sin because we make it all about sin. We're still in perpetual cycles because that's all we're looking at. And we're stuck in guilt, shame, and condemnation that never produces life, never produces transformation. But I'll tell you what it does produce. Frustration and disappointment that then makes you arrogant because you know you can't deal with your own weakness, sin, and brokenness. And so you're so frustrated about that that you haven't seen the finished work of Jesus in your life. So what you do is you become pseudo-spiritual. You begin to discern the heck out of everybody else. And actually what's happened is you're critical, analytical, and judgmental. It's, the pharisaical spirit comes from someone who's condemned. It's why we begin to judge. It's why we criticize. It's why we gossip. It's why we slander. It's why these things happen. It's condemnation ministering through your life. It's the ministry of death. Sometimes we can discern ourselves out of the message of grace or the lenses of grace. We get so pseudo-spiritual, we're so quick to discern everything else that we've actually now stepped out of the lenses of grace for my own life and for everyone around me. See, it's not the church's job to prove that everybody needs to be saved. That's God's job. <laughs> he gave the law. The law works. Are you with me? I, I have never, not one time, had to go to somebody and explain to them how bad they are. Because even the ones who are trying to prove to themselves, well, I'm a good person, and all, they know they're not. When you preach the resurrection life of Jesus, when you preach the gospel of grace, people come alive because internally they know they need Him. The law is doing its job. Our job is not to do the law. We don't live under the law. Our job is to bring the good news of salvation to people. Our job is to bring hope. That's not just a message. It's a man. He's alive. He's speaking over people when everything else is saying die. He's saying live. That's who He is. Amen? And so... I've pretty much preached this whole chapter without reading it. <laughs> Can I just touch on something real quickly? When, when Jesus is in the tomb, where he's raised, and then Mary goes, and, and his body's not there, and she freaks out. And there's a couple things that really move me. This is in John chapter 20. You can read it from verse 11 onwards. But she, she comes, his body's not there, and she's sobbing. And then suddenly, it's so natural and casual, she sees two angels. That's, <laughs> this whole story is just nuts, right? It's a supernatural crazy. She's weeping, and, and it, her responses to things move me because I'm like, wow, how normal was it? Because she's, she's weeping, she's crying, the body's gone. Next thing, there's two men in white, angelic beings, that are telling her, why are you crying? Jesus is not here. He's, and then she freaks out, and she's like, if you took his body, like, where did, you, where did you take it? And then suddenly she turns and Jesus is standing there. And this moves me. She knew that these guys were two angels, but she turns and sees Jesus and thinks he's the gardener. <laughs> it's in your Bible. Two angels are speaking to her. There's two men in white. There's ministry. And then there's the angels knows Jesus. And the Bible says it's Jesus, but she confuses with the gardener and goes, did you take his body? It makes me ask questions like, what does Jesus look like? He's a man. And what did he look like in that moment? Because here's what's crazy. Is that he says her name, Mary. And when he says her name, she clicks. So in other words, resurrected Jesus looks a little different. He is a man, but he looks a little different that she couldn't quite recognize him straight away. If you go a little deeper... She goes to grab him and he says, you can't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to my father, but go tell my disciples that I'm raised and I'm coming. And this is what moves me is that he hasn't ascended to the father yet. It's almost like Jesus, he died on the cross. He goes down into the pit of hell and he conquers sin and death once and for all and he takes the keys of Hades, right? And then he's on his way up in a triumphal procession to ascend to the father, but he stops on his way. Because Mary's sobbing. Yeah. 
I don't know if you're seeing this. This is how much he loves us. One of his friends is at his tomb weeping because it hasn't quite clicked how good this news actually is. And on his way, he's still busy. He's still busy doing the work, but he stops to say to Mary, I'm alive. Don't weep. Go tell them I'm alive. And she wants to grab him like we all were. Oh, Jesus, don't go anywhere. He's like, you can't actually hold me yet because actually I'm still in this the spiritual realm and the natural realm just touched for a second so that he could tell Mary, I love you. <laughs> and then he goes, descends to the Father and then comes and reveals himself to the disciples as now resurrected, beautiful revelation, one Jesus with holes in his hands. Mary had this encounter. Oh, this rocks me. Mary had this encounter because she was wrapped up in Jesus. See, Mary understood her need for Jesus. No one had to tell Mary how much she needed Jesus. She knew. She was the one with, what was it, seven demons and prostitute and all these things. She knew. So she's at the grave going, he's my only hope. Where is he? And Jesus is going, I am so drawn to that. I am so drawn to your need for me. There's only, there's only one form of neediness that's okay in the kingdom. It's our need for him. He's everything. And he takes the time. Midway of the triumphal procession, conquering the devil and all the demonic strongholds, sin and death with the keys of Hades. He's making a triumphal procession, but he's, everyone stop the trumpet, stop everything, just pause. She's going to go tell Mary, I love her. That's the king that we serve, okay? And then he, uh, he comes and he reveals himself, John 20, to the disciples, and he says, peace be to you. He shows them his hands and his side, and they were filled with great joy. And then he makes this crazy statement, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but Jesus is a, a wild man to me. I, I'm just like, this guy, is, he's a savage. I love him. He's just, it's like, he's just constantly breaking the mold of what you expect him to do. And I, I think if the church gets a revelation of the resurrected Jesus, the resurrection life of Christ in us, I think we begin to break the mold a little bit. I think we begin to stop being so typical and religious about how we do stuff, and we get a little bit fiery, a little bit wild, and suddenly we begin to associate with people that everyone else is upset about. How can you be friends with them? Well, guess what? Because they need Jesus just like I did. And there's something that stirs up in our heart. It's, it's a lens, it's a perspective of the church that's grace-centered, grace-orientated, because we know how much we we needed him. You know, there's a, there's a statement here. He says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. And if you retain the sins of anyone, they are retained and remain unforgiven because of their unbelief. Passion, actually, the Passion Translation words it really well. I've done a study on this. I think it's, it's probably the closest. It's this. If you proclaim forgiveness, they'll receive forgiveness. If you don't proclaim forgiveness, how will they know they're forgiven? Forgiveness. See, reconciliation starts with forgiveness. If we don't know how to receive forgiveness for ourselves, if we don't understand what the resurrection of Jesus did, we won't be able to receive His fullness. And if we can't receive the fullness of forgiveness for ourselves, how do we forgive others? The reason why we can't forgive others, why we hold on to brokenness, why we hold on to offense, why we hold on to all these things, is because we don't actually know that we're forgiven. Guilt, shame, and condemnation will perpetuate a religious spirit every time. It's, a, it's the doorway for legalism. You see, because the law produces guilt, shame, and condemnation. It's the ministry of condemnation. And it opens the door for a legalistic perspective, which actually is all about just self-preservation. I don't know how to fix myself, so I'd rather put on a spiritual act and discern everybody else and figure out what's wrong with everybody else and have an opinion about everything. But actually, in my own heart, I know that I need Him. It's just, majority of, of Pharisees are sincerely deceived. But it's pride and arrogance that keeps us in this place of, of, of hardness, where we harden our hearts to the gospel. But actually, the church is supposed to be a very soft, tender, beautiful place where everybody knows just how much we need Him. And it's because we need Him that we can walk in His authority because we know it's not our own righteousness, it's His. There's no power in our own attempt. It's not there. I'm going to have some coffee. Do you understand that? There's no power 
in our own attempt. We need Him. See, when we receive by faith, we believe that He's made me righteous. I am the righteousness of God. It's mine. When I have that kind of attitude, it's a confidence not in my own strength. That's why it's not arrogance. Because I'm not confident in myself. I had to get it from Him. It's His. But He said I could wear it. Forever. It's tattooed on me, inside and out. It's not going anywhere. It's mine. Because I have that, guess what the fruit of my life is? Righteousness. You don't see righteousness in your life because you're trying to be righteous. See, when we talk about pursuing righteousness, it means to believe what He's given you. It doesn't mean to try and do it yourself. If we understood what Jesus did on the cross, can I, we're going to go to, you should read John 19 and 20 and 21. I've referenced a lot of it, okay? But we're going to quickly turn to Colossians. If we understood what actually happened at the cross, I think we'd have a little freak out holy dance. Because, and I, I know I'm not going to get into eschatology and stuff like that now because I, I'm, I can get naughty and then people get upset and you need time to unpack it and all that. But I just want to say this, more happened at the cross than you think. Really. I think the, the, what crippled the church is that we actually think that the cross was just the moment where Jesus dealt with sin so that we could have a relationship with Him. And then now we're like this weak, frail people that are trying to believe for signs and wonders to happen, waiting for the, resurre- the, the second coming of Jesus. Um, and when that happens, oh, then there'll be a thousand years. And in those thousand years, oh, it's going to be nice again. And then after that, I think somewhere there, you'll create a new heaven and new earth. This is how sometimes we think. Now, I'm not mocking that. It might be 100% true. But here's what my Bible tells me. Colossians. Chapter 2, from verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, worldliness and your manner of life, God made you alive together with Christ, having freely forgiven us all. Everybody say all. I don't know if there's room for anything else. No? All, right? All our sins. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of legal demands which were in force against us and which were hostile to us. You don't want to be under the law. And this certificate, he has set aside and completely removed by nailing it to the cross. Now, here's, here's where it gets wild. When he, had dis, when he had, past tense, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, those supernatural forces of evil, evil operating against us, he made a public example of them, exhibiting them as captives in his triumphal procession, having triumphed over them through the cross. Okay, we don't get it. He did it. He triumphed over every supernatural demonic force that was operating against us, over the flesh, over sin, over everything that could try to be an obstacle against who He is and His dominion and His rule and reign. He conquered it on the cross and had a triumphal procession where He actually publicly exhibited to everybody else, I won. So why is our view of the days we live in and where we're going one of doom, gloom, judgment, and punishment? Because, oh, sorry, Jesus still has to beat the devil again. He beat him a little bit on the cross. He just gave him a quick hiding, let him loose again, and now he's coming back to beat him a second time. Not, that doesn't, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says it's done. So why are we so concerned with the demonic? Why are we so aware of all the nonsense that's going on and we want to discern the heck out of everything and we're scared of this spirit and that spirit and this operating and that person and this? Come on, rise up in the finished work of Jesus. Be a demonstration of who He is. Walk in resurrection life and power. See, because Jesus was walking around and demons were freaking out. There was every spirit that was trying to operate against Him, yet I don't see Him so concerned with that. He wasn't discerning out of His 12 disciples what spirit each one was operating in. He loved them. There's something about the resurrection life of Jesus that actually equips us and empowers us to do one simple thing, and it's the heartbeat of the gospel. Become love. Love is free. Love's not offended. Love's not hurt. See, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And the life. He's the life we're called to live. Our Christianity, if it's an attempt to be like Him, we're going to get stuck in something that gets close but never quite sees the finished work. 
If it's him, I don't know if you're hearing me. It's got to just be him. Our prayer is not, God, help me to be more like you. That's not our prayer. Oh, did you hear me? That's not our prayer. God, today, help me to be more like you. That's not scriptural. You know, in the, in the, we use that scripture out of John the Baptist, Lord, less of me and more of you. Can I just say to you that that is actually not in the context of you personally. It was actually in the context of John the Baptist's ministry. Less of my ministry, it's now the time for the ministry of the Messiah. That's what he was talking about. But now we sing songs like, God, less of me, a little bit less of me, a little bit more of you, God. Let's see that increase in my life. No, that's not the gospel. It's die. Die to yourself. Deny yourself. And let the life of Christ live inside of you. Because the hope of glory isn't your attempt to be like Him. The hope of glory is Christ in you. Now here's what's wild and beautiful. Is he made you unique because God cannot be boxed to one expression. So every single one of us are unique in how that will be expressed. But it must carry the marks and the nature of Christ. This is not about us trying to move towards behavioral modification. This is not about us trying to line up our behavior with Jesus. I'll say that again. This is not about us trying to line up our behavior with Jesus. This is about a heart transformation that changes everything about you. I think the struggle in the church today, and this is the gospel that we preach, it's got to conquer this thing. If it doesn't challenge this, then I question what we're preaching. But the struggle is that we genuinely think somehow we're going to do this in our own strength. Or we genuinely think that it's, it's our job or it's, it's right to feel guilty and ashamed and to, to try to find the way forward. And it's so sincere because our hearts love the Lord. And it's out of love for Him, but it's our weak, broken love that will never, ever fulfill what He's got for us. And He never asked you to. I think that's the key. He didn't ask you to do that. He said, come to me. You know, it's beautiful. In, back in John 19, he, he cries out, I thirst. Right before he says, it, it is finished, he says, I thirst. And then it's amazing because he says, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink at no cost. Jesus became thirsty so that you would never thirst again. Jesus became the sour wine so that you would only drink the new wine of his covenant. What is he inviting us into? Resurrected Jesus is saying, my life is your life because you're my bride. See, marriage on the earth becomes twisted when, when it's two lives, two separate lives, trying to find a way to do life together. That's not marriage. Marriage is a oneness. It's one life. Yes, there can be different expressions in that, but it's one life together. And Jesus has invited us into that. He's going, union with me, oneness with me. It's one life. If we would understand what Jesus did on the cross, that he really did it, he actually triumphed over sickness, over death, over sin, over every principality and stronghold. Don't you think we, what we would do would look a little different? How you walk out of this building would be a little different when you really believe you have the victory. You're not, you know, this, is, this changed how we go into nations because I still work with people, uh, you know, who it's like we're going in and we're going to, Go and dethrone Satan in this nation. You know, it's, we're going to come against every, we, the, the karate chop intercessors. I love them. But the thing is, they get smashed, and I've done it. I, I did it, and I got smashed. Why? Because you, the only authority that the enemy gets is what you give it. It does, it does not have authority. The devil has no authority. The demonic has no authority. It's why when somebody's possessed by a demon, just release the name of Jesus and tell it to leave, and it will leave. If it's not leaving, it might not be a demon. It might be flesh. Because flesh you don't cast out. You crucify. So, so here's the difference. And, and if we understand the authority we walk in, we'll begin to discern what's demonic. Then it's just casted out, and you'll see immediate release. Or... It's flesh. You need to take truth, go home, go in a secret place, put yourself to death in the spirit, not for the recording, in the spirit. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. What would it look like 
I really think if we believed this, if the Lord this morning would set fire to our faith, I think it would be very difficult to shake us as Christians and believers. Dare I say impossible. Because you can't, you can't take this from me. I didn't earn it. Because I didn't earn it, you can't take it from me. It was given to me by the King of glory, creator of all. You, you can't compete with him. See, the devil is not God's enemy, by the way. He's ours. So there's scriptures where it says, you know, God defeats all his enemies. We go like, oh, thank you. That was the devil, you know. Nah, that was the flesh. That was sin. That was the creation that he made in his image that, that actually rebelled against him. It's called self-righteousness. That's the enemy of God. See, the devil, he's opposed to us. He can't oppose God. He, it's he, not, he can't even try because it's just he's that weak. So what does he do? He comes at the ones God loves. And he wants to shift our thoughts and, and cause us to believe wrongly about who we are. So isn't it a clever strategy to make the message that we preach or to influence the message that we preach and make it about sin and about how you really need to let Jesus sort out your sin and fix your sin so that you can actually get right? It's, it's true, but it's not the point. It's true. Jesus does sort out our sin. Jesus did get rid of it. He did remove it. But, but that can't be the emphasis of the gospel. Are you with me? The emphasis of the gospel is now what? Thank you. You got rid of my sin. You gave me a new nature. I don't, what does that mean? He says, actually, those that are sons of God, this is the Holy Spirit's inside of us crying out, Abba, Father, on our behalf. That, that's a statement of intent from the Lord going, I'll put my spirit in you who will cry out, Abba, on your behalf so that we can be together. <laughs> the, evidence, the evidence of the revelation of Jesus is not just knowing that you're free from sin. It's walking in intimacy and relationship with Him every day. It's knowing that you can come to Him all the time. You have open access to the throne room of heaven. Uh, this gospel, the one that proclaims that He actually won, not just not, not come to the altar so that He can win for you. No, He has won. That message will liberate regions. You hear me? See, because if we have to go into regions and places trying to bring the gospel like a weapon to contend with the demonic, we're going to get smacked around because, again, that, that has a lot to do with me and how I handle this situation. It's why victory in places, dark places like in the Middle East, victory is coming from exalting Jesus who has won. And then He does the work. The only time, scripturally, we're called to bring down strongholds is in here. <laughs> Every thought that tries to raise itself above the, the revelation of Jesus or obedience to Christ, that's the one you bring down. Why? Because that's called denying yourself. <clears throat> so Jesus goes to the cross, takes the place of Barabbas, you and me, takes the full punishment and, and he sees something, even in the midst of the most horrific moment where he's completely rejected by the people he just spent three and a half years serving and loving and healing. And those same people are crying out, crucify him. The same people that were throwing palms down saying, welcome the king, are standing in a crowd crying out, crucify him. And it doesn't shift Jesus, even though there was anguish and pain. We see it in Gethsemane. We see that He did it as a man. Even in the midst of that, He did not shift from the will of the Father. Why? Because there was a joy. Prophetically, He began to see what He was opening up. And He was saying, it's worth enduring this because of what the finished work gives my people. And not only what it gives my people, what it gives Him. A people for His own possession a people that He can put His Spirit inside. A people who the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that Spirit, just think about that, raised Him from the dead, that moment of resurrection, that Holy Spirit, He's now actually inside of you. And if you'll allow Him, He'll govern and be Lord of your life and open up a whole different world for you. It's called the supernatural realm. 
that's your home, that you're called to live in every day. You're called to live from that place into the natural realm as a, a child of a different dimension, supernatural being, a child of light, carrying the good news of the gospel, carrying hope, carrying redemption. Now we would view brokenness very differently. When we see brokenness in the church or we see brokenness in the world, we view it differently because we're ministers of reconciliation as Paul describes it. That's what we've been given. We want to see redemption. We want to see reconciliation. We want to see the resurrection life of Jesus touching every heart, every mind, every physical body. See, this message starts to set a climate for the supernatural because our expectation is signs, wonders, and miracles that confirm His resurrection life. Amen? It should, I'm really, I'm out of breath, I'm trying here, but it should, it should stir something in your heart going like, I am not okay with nominal Christianity. I am not okay with the normal everyday life. I'm not okay with Monday blues. I'm not okay with depression. I'm not okay with anxiety. I'm not okay with stress. I'm not okay with offense. I'm not okay with brokenness. I'm not okay with hurt. I'm not okay because it's not my portion in Jesus. He was not resurrected for me to live like that. He was not raised from the dead for me to still be a broken, hurt, insecure person who's projecting my own brokenness on other people. He made a way for me to be His. And if we pursued that, not for other people, for you. Because <laughs> you can't choose it for others. You can't choose it for somebody else and say, you know what, you really need to. It's you. And Jesus was so secure walking around as a manifestation of love demonstrating the heart of the Father even when He was rejected, even when He was betrayed. His own disciple, who He knew was going to betray Him. You know what? You handle the finances. How would that change what we do? That Jesus, He loved Judas so much that even, even knowing that Judas wasn't going to repent, that He would actually be the one to betray Him. He goes, you actually handle all my money. Knowing that you're stealing from me. It's okay. See, that is a selfless love. You are wronging me. I know you are doing me wrong, but I love you. The Father loves you. See, just because we are wronged does not change the attitude of the Father towards that person. Help us, Jesus. Just because we are wronged does not change the attitude of the Father to that person. Maybe we need to spend more time in the Word alone with God saying, Jesus, teach me. Let grace train me. More time doing that than watching YouTube sermons. And <laughs> I love them. Don't get me wrong. But maybe more time letting this thing become who we are. More time not thinking about everybody else and trying to be the, find the answer for everybody else, but going, God, Make the answer alive in me that my life would be a testimony of Jesus. That the fragrance of the love of God in and through my life would actually draw others to you. And it's not up to me if, if they're offended by it. That's their own journey. Jesus offended so many people. The church becomes a supernatural force when we are so drenched, covered, built, and saturated in the message of grace, in the, the, the lifestyle of the gospel, in the love of God. It becomes a place where people can come. And, and, and they, no matter what they're going through, no matter what their addictions are, as we were praying, struggles, sin, brokenness, relational hurt, all these things, come. Because that means you're thirsty. And Jesus said, all those who are thirsty, come and drink at no cost. Why are we making people pay with guilt, shame, and condemnation to drink from the fullness of the gospel that Jesus said is free? It is not our place to discern sin in others. It's our job to represent the righteousness of Christ. It's been given to us. It looks like something. And I want to just encourage you. The gospel of grace does not produce a sinful church. It does not. But we're so scared to go there. We're so afraid because it's just so good and it's just so wild. And it's like, what you're saying is I could continue to sin from now until Jesus comes and He'd still accept me and love me. And I'm saying, yep. 
Yep. But the reality is, when you believe the gospel, it does not produce that kind of heart. It doesn't produce a heart that wants to sin. Because you know that's not your portion. Nobody likes it. (laughs) The only reason why people are stuck in cycles of sin is because they believe it's part of their identity. They don't like it. Even the ones, you know, people go, well, you know, there's some sins and things like that. Instant pleasure, instant gratification. Yeah. And after? It's generally how you know something is sin. It's how you feel afterwards. Because you have this, this conscience that knows what's right and wrong. But God is so good and faithful that He's going, I know. I know that. I've been, I carried it. I, I, what you're feeling I carried it for for everyone who would ever exist. I put it on myself. I know what that feels like. And I'm saying to you, I'm not asking you to carry it. I'm asking you to put it to death. Put it to death and take the love of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus and put it on. In Ephesians Ephesians 4, I think it's 20, from 21. If in fact you have really heard him and have been taught by him, just as the truth is in Jesus, revealed in his life and personified in him, that regarding your previous way of life, you put off your old self, completely discarding your former nature, which is being corrupted through deceitful desires. I love this about the gospel. You see it in Romans, you see it in Ephesians, you see it in Colossians. He, he doesn't describe the, the desires of the sinful nature as yours. It's desires or through deceitful desires. He never, he never labels it you. I don't know if you see this. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the sinful nature, He never makes it personal to you. He makes it personal to a nature that needs to be crucified because it's not yours. So He says, You put off your old self which is being corrupted through deceitful desires. And be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind, having a fresh, untarnished mental and spiritual attitude. And put on the new self, the regenerated and renewed nature, created in God's image, in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. And it says you're living in a way that expresses to God your gratitude for your salvation. Do you know how you live thankful to the Lord? By walking in what He gave you. Are you with me? Sometimes we're singing songs, thank you, but my life is lived like it never happened. Thank you for your body. Thank you that you died for me, but I'm still living every day like I've got to try and figure this out and I just can't and I'm broken and I'm hurt and I'm ashamed. and I'm To live in gratitude, to be thankful for what he's done is to go, Lord, I can't do this. You aren't asking me to do this. You aren't asking me to figure this out. You aren't asking me to produce fruit on my own. You're asking me to deny this, crucify the flesh. How do we crucify the flesh? Thank you, Jesus, that I died with you and that I was raised to new life in you. That's how you do it. The weapon, and that's where I'll end today, the weapon of our Christianity, the weapon of righteousness, the way we live righteous is by faith. The righteous live by faith. It's not about how you feel. It's the weakness of the church to live by feelings. We... we, because that's the thing is, that's how life starts to speak to you. It makes you feel a certain way. And if you're led by your feelings, you'll, you'll obey it. But actually, by faith, you can go, man, I, I'm actually very aware of my shortcomings. I'm very aware of my failure. I'm very aware of the fact that I can't do this in my own strength. So what do I do? Well, faith is to put that off. Thank you, God. That's not who I am. Thank you that I died with Christ. Thank you that I was raised into newness of life, given the righteousness of Christ because of what you did for me. And this is where I stand. And so today, God, I'm going to walk in this. Don't measure it by what your day looks like. There's been days I wake up, I am the righteousness of Christ. And then the dog, stupid dog. Oh, shucks. But that's not righteous. See, the moment you go there, what you're doing is just putting yourself back under the law going, because I didn't do something righteous, I obviously aren't. I'm obviously not righteous. Instead of going, oh, hold on, no, I am. I'm the righteousness of God. 
Thank you, Jesus. Keep walking in righteousness. And the more we train our minds, it's called renewing the mind. The more we train our minds to come into submission to the truth, the more you'll see the evidence of the gospel in your life. Amen? It's how you see the life of Jesus lived in and through you is by believing. And believing, it doesn't always necessarily feel good. Sometimes it's a choice that has nothing to do with how you feel in that moment. It's just faith. Some of the most profound miracles happen when you feel nothing, but you just believe. People like Smith Wigglesworth and John G. Lake, they understood this revelation of, they didn't even, just to be honest, you study their theology, their theology was whack. Some of their stuff was actually not that great, but they believed. So it was like, Jesus is so amazing. He's like, you don't even have to have perfect theology. I might be totally off with my eschatology. And Jesus is like, man, I just love that you believe me. I'm just, I love you. So if we had learned to be a people of faith, that believe in the finished work of Jesus, that believe in the resurrection life, can you imagine what we begin to look like as the church and where we go? So when you leave this room, you have to understand who you are in Jesus. That's my prayer, that Holy Spirit right now would begin to illuminate something in your heart to go, you are not of this world. You are not created to be subdued by a sinful nature. It's not yours. And today you don't have to go, well, man, I'm just so gutted that I've actually been living that way and I need to just, you know, I need to go spend two hours with God and just repent for the last week. No, that's not what I'm saying. Right now, make a decision by faith to put it off and to put Him on. You are not the same person you were five seconds ago. And even that statement is now in the past, and I'm not the same person who made that statement. And I'm moving from glory to glory in the righteousness of Jesus. And as long as I believe that I'm in Him, He's doing the work in my heart. We have no right to go back. We have no right to use the past to dictate to us our present or our future. It's an insult to the cross. He never looks back. My dad said something, I think it was last week, that we view our past as like lineal in the timeline of our life. He doesn't view it that way because he's outside of time. So we're, we're looking back thinking if I look at my life and, oh, look, that's, there's more bad than what I can see good right now because I haven't got very far on this one. And, and it begins to speak to our conscience. But actually the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works. Hello? The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience, conscience <laughs> from dead works so that we can follow Him, so that we can be obedient to Him. It would be a good thing if you're conscious while doing that. <laughs> I hope this morning that you just would catch a little bit of the contagious fire of the gospel, that He loves you so much. You're all in, in different situations and circumstances, and I'm telling you, you are not in your own strength the answer to that. It's Christ in you. You can't do it. It's okay. So let Him do it. And put your faith in Him. And you know that that doesn't mean like, you know, sometimes the Lord's doing this beautiful journey. Let Him do it. Let Him take your heart on a journey. Let Him minister to your heart. Sometimes we're trying to rush it. Sometimes we're trying to, you know, hit fast forward on things because I don't really like, I don't like the fact that I'm seeing this process happening. No, let Him touch you. Let Him do it because the quicker you yield and just give it all to Him, the faster you see transformation in your life. See, He produces fruit. fruit. I need some water. He produces fruit far quicker than we can and, and far more abundantly. We can work our whole lives to squeeze out a little prune when you were actually meant to produce vineyards of amazing grapes. It's a new song we're releasing, Amazing Grapes. Amazing Grapes! It's going to be fire, I promise you. <laughs> new wine for the church. <laughs> See, if the church doesn't walk out of gatherings like this, smiling, happy, excited, moved by God, if we walk out of rooms like this, heavy and weighty, I, I just question what we're talking about. I think church is going to look very different when we need less ministry for brokenness and more opportunities to bring and reach others that, that don't even know Jesus. 
That's actually our primary purpose as the church. When we come together here, it's, it's to be equipped and empowered because God loves. See, Jesus didn't die for the church. He died for the world. So it's like we as the church carry the mandate of Jesus to reach the world. That's why we want to see lost sons and daughters come to know him. But if we don't know who we are, how are we going to represent him well? So let the grace of God wash over you today. Let him just saturate you, fill you with joy, fill you with hope. There's only one way, it's Jesus. We think, you know, yeah, we preach that as if it's like that, that one message that Jesus is the only way to the Father. So, you know, all the Buddhists and the Hindus, and they all need to get the act together. I'm like, no, no, a lot of the church needs to get the act together. Because we still think that we can be the way. <laughs> you know, I'm still on my own way to find the Father. No, it's Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the only way to the Father. He loves you and He's invited you and He's calling you into the fullness of what He paid for. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning? Lord, thank You for Your goodness, for Your faithfulness and Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace. God, we, we are so in awe of what You did. And we, this morning, we are so thankful that You died on a cross, God. That You took our place that you conquered sin and death, that you triumphed over every obstacle, everything that would try to hinder us, everything that would try to, to rob us of our destiny and our inheritance in the kingdom. And then, Lord, you were raised from the dead into newness of life as the resurrected King of glory. And we were raised with you. And so this morning, I ask, Lord, for my own heart and for every single one of us, for a fresh revelation of the finished work that you said, it is finished, my beautiful bride, perfect. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you that we can walk in it and live it out. Lord, I, I release your anointing on the word today, on the scriptures, and on what, what has been released. And Father, I ask if there's anything that's not in your heart, that it would fall away. But let the truth prevail in our hearts, Lord Jesus, that we would enthrone you in our lives by simply believing all that you've done for us. I bless this house. I bless these people. I thank you that they'd walk out of this room buzzing with life, excited about who you've made us to be, that there's hope and a future for every single one of us, that life cannot tell me who I am because the life already did. So Holy Spirit, we love you. We bless you. We receive you today. Thank you for this time. And God, thank you for the future of 24-7 in this city. Lord, we just give to you the situation we're in and Lord, if this building that you've brought our way is for us, I pray that you would open the door, speak to us, make it clear. And God, if it's not as a community, we ask that you protect us and close that door, that you will open the right doors. So Lord, we just pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done in 24-7 in this season. And Lord, even over this week, as we, we have uh, guests coming to minister and have a powerful time on Thursday night and next weekend, God, we just give it to you. We say thank you for this season. Thank you that you cover us, that you hold us so tenderly, that you're ministering to 24-7. And Lord, that this is just the beginning. We thank you that many lost sons and daughters would come to know Jesus. God, I ask that 24-7 would grow according to your growth, not the growth of man. We want lost sons and daughters coming home to their king. We want to see souls saved and transformed and redeemed, disciples made in our city and in the nations. So, Lord, make a holy, beautiful example of your grace out of 24-7 Church and out of every single one of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Guys, love you. You're amazing. I champion you. Go shine. Be who God's called you to be. Have an amazing coffee uh, and so into missions. And uh, we'll, we'll see you in the week. Bless you guys.